If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 7, begin reading at verse 54. Acts 7 and verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We are not strangers to mob violence. Much of that has been brought to our attention in our cities. There appears to have been quite an uprise in this sort of thing. And people would do things in a mob that they would never think of doing alone. The power of the mob to incite and inflame is well known. And it is on display here this morning in our passage. Stephen was told to speak. And speak he did. And he turned the accusations against him into a full bore picture of their disobedience. He showed that even though in words they seemed to deify Moses in the law and even the temple, they actually had mistreated them all. And how historically they have rejected those who were sent by God to deliver them, Joseph, Moses, the prophets, and Jesus at last, who he referred to as the just one, the just one that they had just murdered, the innocent one. So now as we look at this section from verse 54 to 60, there are four parts to it. There's the reaction There's the revelation, there's the riot, and there's the rest. For those of you who are into alliteration, there it is, four R's. And so the reaction in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. It was like a a dull saw cutting them in two. And like a pack of angry wolves with jaws clicking, teeth grinding. The reaction to the truth that they had gives us a picture of of faces in hell. In Lamentations 2 and verse 16, 
All your enemies have opened their mouths against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth. Jesus would say to those who are not believers, who are hypocrites, depart from me into outer darkness and there will be gnashing of teeth, groaning and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is like the grinding of teeth. It's similar to perhaps if you've ever hit your hand very hard with a hammer or had your fingers caught in a door, that kind of feeling that causes your jaw to come together tightly and your teeth to basically grind together. It is here a display of great anger and great distress. And as the crowd begins to grow in anger and being incited to desire the blood of Stephen, we see the first of the contrasts. It is probably very clear to Stephen at this moment as he sees the reaction and the things that are going on, as he sees the crowd running for him, that he realized his time was short. But in the midst of this comes the revelation. We see it in verse 5. But he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so we see in verse 55 the contrast is introduced and it always begins with one three-letter word, and here again we have two words, but Stephen. But introduces the contrast. Here they are doing this, but he's doing this in contrast. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he no longer saw the crowd, no longer gazed at the mob, but he gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God as he gazed into heaven. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What did he actually see? Well, he, by the grace of God in the hour of crisis, saw something similar to what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 and verses 1 through 3 in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on, a, seated on a throne and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is that glorious thing that he saw and we're told with Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, John tells us in twelve forty one that it was Jesus, enthroned Jesus, that Isaiah was seeing. He saw something similar to what Peter, James, and John saw at the transfiguration when Christ gave an initial picture to them of his coming glory. But he's not seeing the full glory of God because no man can do that and live. Moses asked to see the glory of God. God said, no, you can't do that and live. But you'll, you'll see a partial. I'll show you a partial glory. 
a portion of it. And see, instead of being seated at the right hand, we see here we're told that Jesus is standing. Now, part of this is metaphorical because remember, God is spirit. See, we can't picture God as God is spirit. We don't know what spirit looks like. And when we think of the throne of God, it's not a literal throne of God because then we would say, well, God is confined to one space and he's not. He's everywhere. And so therefore, when we hear that kind of language, it's a picture of God reigning. And who's next to him? Christ. Christ is appearing and he's appearing still with his humanity because he did not shed that at the ascension. And so there is an understanding that even though we say, well, then Jesus can't be everywhere, can he? Remember, Jesus is divine and human. His divinity never changed. And so he can be at all places at the same time, even though in his humanity he might have a particular location. And that's comforting to us because he said he would go to prepare a place for us that we would be with him in that place. And so there's much in the posture that we see. Jesus is standing and everything we say, we always picture and speak of in so many times in scripture that he is at the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand. But here he stands. Now if we have a picture of a courtroom, What does the judge do? What posture does the judge have in a courtroom? He's seated. He's seated as a judge. But the advocate, the lawyer for defense, what does he do when he presents? He stands. Jesus standing in heaven as Stephen's advocate. In Psalm 109 and verse 31, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Jesus ascended in the body of his resurrection and that's how he appears in heaven. And we know he is at the right hand of the Father as we read, well, we can turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, speaking of Christ who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then we could move over to chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. And of course that often repeated Psalm 110 and verse 1. Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. The right hand then is a place of power 
and authority. Now the full details of all this cannot be easily or explicitly laid out. What did Stephen actually see? We can give an approximation, but we can't give an exact picture. Because he had his eyes open to see what we can't see. And that's an important thing to understand. Paul himself would, be, would speak of being brought up into the third heaven to see things that were what? Unspeakable. Not that they were awful, but they were things that you can't find words for. And that's when we get in Revelation, we find that John always uses similes and such. He said, well, it was like this. And it was like that because there was nothing that exactly came close to saying what he saw because he never saw it before. So we can only estimate. It was kind of like, I've referred to this on several occasions, but it's important for us to understand. Elisha had a servant. They had sent an army out to capture Elisha. Elisha's servant comes in, he's He's spinning around in circles going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The army's here. The army's here. We're terribly outnumbered. They're going to get us. Elisha then looks at his servant, looks to heaven and says, oh Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And upon having his eyes opened by the Lord, he looked on the hillside, and there was the mighty host of heaven aligning the hillside, far outnumbering the army that had come to get Elisha. My friends, there's a dimension, and I don't want to get into this kind of mystical kind of thing, but there's the dimension behind all this that we do not see into. We are told that angels are attending the angels are, are around us. We don't see into that realm, but that realm exists. And we must understand that Stephen is given an opportunity to see beyond the immediate. To see something that we are not given the opportunity to see at all every day. And so on that day as they looked, everyone around there gazing the heavens. He's seeing Christ at the right hand, standing at the right hand. What was everybody else seeing? Sky. It's not like the rest of the crowd is nudging each other and saying, look, yeah, he's right. They were too busy looking at him anyway. They couldn't have seen anything in the sky, even if the Goodyear blimp had gone over, which would have been a great surprise. 
at that time. Look, I see the heavens opened. There was, we could say, a miracle that was wrought in his eyes. He sees Christ reigning in the flesh in which he is raised. He gazes into heaven, looking up steadfastly. He's not looking down at all. He's not seeing the crowd that's running towards him. He's looking up and seeing his Savior. He's different from Peter in that case. Remember, Peter sees Jesus out walking on the water. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, bid me come. Come. Peter steps out from the boat onto the water. It's all looking good. He's on the water standing. So what's the next thing he does? He sees the wind and the waves boisterous. And the moment he takes his eyes off Christ and he looks at the circumstances, shoot. What caused Peter to sink? And I've already told you young ones, don't you put gravity down there. He took his eyes off Jesus. That's what caused him to go down. But Stephen's different here. He is gazing and his eyes are steadfast as he's watching his Lord in the midst of all this. And he becomes basically oblivious to the pack of wolves that is surrounding him. Now there are some that think, well, maybe someday I'll see the same thing. Well, I challenge you to go through Scripture and see if that ever happened again. And it didn't. And these one-time events that happen in Scripture are not there for us to set a pattern about. That is to show a special circumstance, a special deliverance, a special vision, a special gift from God for that moment to that person. Not that we say, oh yeah, well, whenever in trouble, we'll just look up and see God, Christ up there. We don't have to. We know by his word that he's with us. So it's a one-time event that doesn't get repeated. And secondly, we should not, in the midst of crisis, seek for an external vision, but internal revelation for God to reveal his word that he's already given to us. A sense of the presence of him because why? We're told that if we're a believer, where does Christ dwell? He dwells in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, dwells in us through his spirit. So being full of the Holy Spirit, the whole scene to him and for him was 180 degrees different from what was going on in the crowd and for his revelation. And speaking what he saw, we then see it resulted in a riot. Verse 57, And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. What a frenetic scene. As he spoke, 
They put their fingers in their ears and tried to out-yell him. Between their fingers in their ears and the raising of their voices, they thought maybe they could just drown out what he is saying. And then they ran at him. What a scene. A group of grown men running and yelling with their fingers in their ears. Running at him. And the language here is similar to the time Jesus cast his demons into the swine. In Luke 8 and verse 33, after he cast the demons into the swine, the demons went out of the man and entered into the swine and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. And here's this herd violently coming at Stephen. Like possessed pigs. They were out of control. Yet still in the midst of being out of control, he said, well, you know, we're not supposed to kill anybody in the city. It's, it's against the law. We got to remember, we got to take them out of the city. Stoning. And they did. They cast him out of the city in verse 58 and they stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes. You see, the ones that came <clears throat> and brought the false testimony against him, they were the witnesses. They're supposed to throw the first stones. But boy, you know, you got to loosen up and you got to be free. So now... About now, what was the distance generally between the one being stoned and the one throwing the rocks? About 12 feet. So you got a bunch of half naked men with stones in their hands trying to kill somebody else, taking off their outer robes so they'll have more freedom to be able to throw. And so, at the end of verse 58, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would, in short time, after persecuting the church, become the apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen. What was going on as they started throwing stones? He was calling on God. And then in their riotous frenzy as all this was going on and they're starting to pelt him with these rocks and being 12 feet away or so, it's the size of the rock was large enough to, they weren't throwing pebbles, let me put it that way. But in the midst of this riotous frenzy, what happens? The, third, the fourth part, the rest. Stephen enters into his rest. He was calling on the God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ was on the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And as the rocks were pelting his body, 
where we would be tempted to yell in anger right back at them for the hurt that they were placing upon his body. He said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And after he said that, he fell asleep. What a picture of peace in the midst of the most horrendous of circumstances. It was grace of God by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ that made this arena of violence a place of rest for him. And of course, he went to sleep means that he died. But that's the great picture of those who are believers. The the, the word is often only applied to them. They fell asleep. They went to their rest. Now, now a few things that we can take from this. A little while ago, we recited in the Nicene Creed, Christ ascended. Is at the right hand of the Father. As you read those words, perhaps you're just reciting. Okay, it's a truth. And we need to believe that truth. But it's not an abstract truth. Because that, my friends, is what Stephen saw. And that is what filled his heart through the Spirit with the strength to endure that which was coming upon him. You see, it's an important thing. It's an important thing to us to know, no matter what's happening to us, even perhaps even at our last hours, to know that our Lord is there enthroned. The second thing that we would take from this again, that we need to know when we say very God of very God, that Jesus Christ is God, one essence, essence with the Father. And Stephen knew the deity of Christ. When he said, and pray, it says here, he prayed to God. What did he pray to God? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What's that telling you? Well, he's telling you clearly. Stephen saw Jesus as God. And he prayed to him. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then, thirdly, he saw the glory of God. Is he the only one that can do that? What is there for us in something like that? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 6, we read, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have that witness in us. The fourth thing, it serves so well as a corrective to our earthbound hearts. How grateful, how, great, how greatly fearful we can be over mere rumors of danger. What a disgusting display of manipulation we saw in this last electoral cycle scare you 
Boom! See, obviously he saw the commercials. Mere rumors. I mean, we have constantly people saying to us every day, well, you know, this is trouble. And people say, we didn't win the Senate. This, is, this, can, this can not bode well for us. If you're thinking about some self-centered politician in Washington, D.C. as being your deliverance, you're in terrible shape. And the slightest waving of a leaf in the wind will be scary to you. Being so earthbound, we pass over heaven in our thinking as if the only place that we can find help is on this earth. You know, I remember as being a teenager in the late 60s and early 70s, some of those who were protesters of Vietnam and such, there's nothing worth dying for. Is that the way we really feel? Nothing worth dying for? Stephen saw it as more than worth dying for. That is the truth of the Lord. And that brings lastly to this. Kind of looks like when Stephen was killed, the Lord side lost in it. Here's this great man of God who speaking great truths and could have great influence, but what happened? They killed him. I remember, I can't remember what coach it was. It might have been Vince Lombardi who said, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And that's the world's idea. You gotta win. You've got to be with the winners. If you have victory, and, and the church is the same way, we're looking for victory. We want to be victorious. Well, the only way we're victorious is in Jesus Christ. They overcame by the Lord. And the death of Stephen, earthly-wise, looked like a loss. But you know what happened after Stephen was stoned to death? Some in Jerusalem said, you know, it might be good if we get out of Jerusalem for a while. Because if they killed him, they're going to start on the rest of us. They could see how the pattern of violence was getting worse and worse. So what did they do? They went to the outskirts, into the land of Judea. They went from Jerusalem to Judea, and then from Judea they would go to the uttermost parts. Just as Jesus had commanded. They ended up following the plan of Christ. And so the gospel went out from Jerusalem into Judea and then all the surrounding areas. Thus the plan of Christ 
was followed. You see, the Lord's ways are not our ways, and what we see as victories sometimes are losses. If we, if we were to say, we won this country, to what? A bunch of moralistic views saying, do this, do that. A heartless obedience, we've seen enough of that. See, it's always the devil wants us to focus on losses, but when Christ died on the cross, the greatest victory that ever happened in the history of the world took place. And he arose victorious. You see, God's ways are not our ways. We say we've got to win in order for it to be worthwhile. And yet Jesus did win but the world saw it as a loss. Stephen did win, even though those around him say he must have lost. Too bad about Stephen. Now he looked upon the face of the Lord who he saw at a distance, now face to face. It is only God who turns seemingly seeming defeat into victory. And as I said, we need look no closer than the cross of Christ. Let's stand together for prayer.